Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1962 Agnes Varda film Cleo from 5 to 7. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great. Barrett, um, I am so excited to talk about this movie. I, um, If you can't tell from the tone of my voice, this thing's a masterpiece. This thing is so great. I loved this movie. Um, what is your history with this film? Is this something you had seen before or is this something you're coming to new? Yeah, I'd seen it before. Um, I went through a phase a couple of years ago where I tried to catch up on French New Wave. And so this was this was one of them. And Varda is another one of those directors I'm aware of. Um, she's a really interesting director. There's a number of other films of hers I want to see. But so far, Cleo from five to seven is the only one I've seen. So this is my second time with this one. Yeah. Um, and, and I want to talk about her relationship to the French New Wave because because uh, I think she's a, a pretty fascinating um figure i've never seen anything else from her uh but watching this movie twice this week definitely makes me want to um want to dive into her her career more um i'm gonna say this i'm gonna talk about camera movements a lot i think in this episode because uh in the same way when we were talking about jean renoir and like like how there there's just so much interesting things that he does with camera moves this movie, this movie feels a little bit like when we talked about um, Jaws and how my sense was Spielberg, like said, I'm going to put everything into this. <laughs> I feel like she does every camera move you can do. And so many of them are balletic and exciting. And I, it's, this is this, if, if I were teaching a film or a class on how to make films and I don't know how to make films, but if I were teaching a class on it, this would be something I would point students to, to be like, figure out how she had to move. Like mm-hmm. how things had to move to make this shot that seems this like effortless and floating, how it how it makes that happen. Um, and I I'm I was stunned. Yeah, that's certainly, you know, we can talk about ways in which this is a new wave film, and maybe some ways in which it's not a new wave film, but certainly in terms of her excitement of what you can do with the camera, uh, as mm-hmm. you pointed out, Sam. It's uh, the way the camera moves, it's uh she adopts some of the jump cuts that you see in, in Gadar. There's just this sense, and also at the same time, the sense of um, almost like a cinema verite. Um, you know, you're out on the streets uh, of Paris. Um, but then at the same time, there's a little bit of, uh, remember, you're watching a movie, right? Because you have the tarot cards in color, everything else mm-hmm. is black and white. And then you get that lovely silent film within a film. Um, so, yeah, it's like, it, I mean, it's like she's throwing everything at you, but it all works. Right. It's 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 like it all it, it makes sense the way she, the way the way she she does it. So I just it, yeah, it's very, uh, very accomplished. Yeah. I mean, as um as I was thinking about connections to, to new wave stuff, I thought about the uh, how much this movie also just exists on the streets of Paris. You know, whether you're thinking about Truffaut or Godard, like there there are definitely movies where I assume they're stealing shots. Right. That that these are not all you know, we block off the street and all these people are extras. I assume they're, they're running around with cameras shooting some of this stuff at least. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, that, that's what I, that's what I figured. And, and, and actually one of the things that Varga said about the film was that um, she called it a, a portrait of a woman painted onto a documentary about Paris. Yes. Uh, abs- and and she, re- she originated as a photojournalist and a documentarian. Um, and here's a connection you might not make uh, to a director that she is otherwise completely different from, which is Stanley Kubrick. 
Um, but she started out as a photographer. And so she has the same sense of composition. Um, I think it's Ebert that says that if you freeze the frame at any point when they're in Cleo's apartment, every shot is perfectly, perfectly composed. So, yeah. Barrett, I had the name Stanley Kubrick written down right after she started her career as a as a still photographer because like it, it's and, and and again there's nothing similar about their films no. other than there's a perfection of image that I think exists uh, exists in both of these, um, along with the camera movement and the and the Paris of it all. This it, also is a, a movie that seems aware of. Uh, a broader sense of art and culture and film a little bit. I mean, you, you know, you, uh, you know, I, I noticed like the, uh, the Elmer Gantry poster as they're, you know, as they're pulling up and then the fact that they go to the movies and it's, um, you, you know, like, like that all of those things are, are um, th this, this film seems very aware of that. And to what one of the things Varda said when she made movies, and this is very French new wavy is like, she wasn't interested in making something about, the past or some grand thing like she wanted to do something that was sort of immediate and now and this is very much set in 1962 in um in paris and even on a specific day i mean if you pay attention this is june 21st in paris in 1962 yeah. um so so that also feels new wavy to me as well the other the other movie poster i noticed was uh bunuel's uh shendandalu the uh, the early film, the early silent film he made with with Salvador Dali. So I don't I don't think that's accidental that that appears in the in the in the background, and that the film itself contains an homage to silent film, both because of the film within the film, and then not to get ahead of ourselves, but the long bus ride at the end, which is an homage to Sunrise. Mm -hmm. uh, which the new wave directors loved as a film. Well, you know, I thought about. I don't know that I've been this excited about the camera floating around and moving since we watched sunrise. Like, like, mm -hmm. like I, I thought a lot about sunrise watching this and not just that. Um, but, but just the way that the, the camera dances around here. And, mm -hmm. and, and I feel like she makes up some stuff, some stuff I've never seen the camera do. She does. I, you know, I, again, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but in the scene in her apartment, when they're playing the music and there's a point where it moves from person to person as they're singing and the camera is literally swaying, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. you probably shouldn't do with a camera. Like that should be off putting, but it's amazing. It's such yeah. a great shot. Yeah. It works really well. <laughs> so, so this movie uh, is one of the, one of the films that made a huge jump on the sight and sound list. Um, mm -hmm. In 2002, it was 289 in 2012. It was uh, I think 214 and, and it's, it's, 14 in the 2022 list yeah. um and uh absolutely deservingly so i mean i really do think i, I think this is this is a, a pretty amazing film what i don't understand is I, I can understand why something like john dealman is a an ask for people because ackerman is not trying to make something that is uh necessarily going to be entertaining in traditional ways mm -hmm. This movie doesn't feel like like heavy lifting to watch. So no. it, so it's one of those. Do you have a sense of why it? I mean, I, I mean, I understand it has to do with the representation of the voting body for the sight and sound list, but why it wasn't until 2022 that this movie is getting that kind of appreciation? That's a good question, Sam. I, I think you know there, there's always there's always the criterion exp explanation, right? There's always the explanation that. Uh, the film, I forget what year the film was restored, uh, you know, but the film was restored probably 10, 15 years ago. 
and then it becomes just more widely available. So I think they're, they're, that's part of it. I think also the whole, in general, the reevaluation of female directors uh, that's all gone on the last 10, 20 years and kind of as a result, sort of rethinking the new wave and maybe people wondering, gee, is there other elements of the new wave that, you know, Godard and Truffaut, they're great. Uh, but maybe there's other elements of the new wave we haven't paid enough attention to. And then just in general, because Varda, uh, right to the end of her life, remains such a strong filmmaker. I think there was just a general interest in kind of reevaluating her career. So I think, all, I think those things all kind of came, came together. So you mentioned how how this film is uh, where we talked about how it, it picks up some definite elements of, of, of French New Wave. Um, what are ways when it, that it maybe pushes against that? Oh, I think uh, absolutely. I, I think I think if you if you if you compare this with, you know, we haven't done a lot of New Wave, but if you compare this, for example, with something like Breathless um, and a lot of Godard, um, there's a. There's a compassion for the characters in, and, and a really uh, humane and humanist interest in characters with Varda that, that you don't that you don't get in Gadar, uh, and even to a certain extent you don't always get with Truffaut. So she said things like, "Nothing is banal if you film people with empathy and love." Hmm. She says, "I'm intrigued by people and I love them." To be honest, she says, "I don't want to be a spy of the person you know, I film. I want to be a friend." Um, that's a very different attitude towards the characters than you see in a lot of other new wave directors. Uh, it's a spirit she, she shares to a large extent with her husband, Jacques Demi, who is another really interesting new wave director who also has a more gentle spirit. But to me, um, that, that's the significant difference with Varda, that I think Varda has, even when her characters are living very difficult lives, like in a later film, Vagabond, uh, even even when when she's looking at a tragic life, um, there's still compassion uh, and and interest in that person as a as a person. Um, whereas you feel with or Godard in particular, you often feel there's a kind of uh, this kind of cynicism uh, at work. Um, he would probably call it realism, <laughs> but it, it it can it can feel a little harsh. Sure, sure. Well, it's interesting to 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 think about that because even the character of Cleo, who is obviously the center of this movie in in lots and lots of ways, um, at one level, if you if you think about Cleo, she's not the most likable person. I mean, but you do have compassion for her. Um, but so so because it's interesting, we we get a lot of other people's views of Cleo <laughs> and. You know, the, the the interesting thing is there's degrees to which they're not wrong, or at least she's buying into what they're saying to make them not wrong. Um, so, but you definitely have this 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 great feeling and compassion for, and this movie obviously makes a, a turn almost at the exact middle of the movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, she, she, she says, well, we've been moving in one direction. Now let's start looking at this a little bit differently, both us as viewers and Cleo as a person. Yeah, what's amazing, and one of the aspects, uh, one of the other technical aspects of this song we haven't mentioned, Sam, is is, is the duration of realism. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like High Noon, right? It takes place in an hour and a half, and not quite so insistently as high, as High Noon, but every once in a while, right, you get a you get a shot of a clock in the background. Maybe it's on the street, or so, just to kind of keep you. Uh, of course, her intertitles or chapter headings tell you where you are in time. But I think it's pretty amazing that in 90 minutes, she brings about a believable change in this character. 
-hmm. So early on, you know, she, we have at the beginning of the, of the chapter that's labeled for Angela, uh, her, I'm not sure, sure exactly who Angela, I guess you'd call her her executive assistant. And she's thinking to herself, oh, you know, she's so hysterical. She's so dramatic. And then when you get the in the second half, at the beginning of the second half, when you get Dorothy thinking about her, Dorothy's like, she's so kind, so, so, so pretty. So it's like, as you said, there's this halfway point. Um, you know, she takes off uh, the white that she's wearing and puts on the black. And, 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 and then you have this kind of, I think, you know, this believable change in this, in this character that when you look back, you think, wow, you know, she started here and yeah, she seemed petulant, she seemed childish, she seemed literally narcissistic, and yet somehow she begins slowly to, to move in, in a different direction that seems entirely plausible. Absolutely. And and um and, and before we even get to that, I want to go to the beginning of this film because this film yes. opens with a kind of visual bang that I did not expect. Because mm -hmm. I have seen stills of this movie. I had a sense of, okay, I know what this is gonna look like. And then it opens in color yeah. with this and again, I mean it's and this is not a moving camera, but it's one of those where if you think about like, oh, it is a it is a, a camera that is absolutely like uh directly overhead of this table so you're all you see are hands on the table with the tarot cards and it's in color and i just i had one of those great moments of like wait i thought i thought i knew what this was and all of a sudden <laughs> i'm seeing this other thing and, and i am a i am a sucker for things that are are, are beautifully shot where you're watching hands do things like mm. like, like where you if, if you're watching somebody write i find that if it's filmed right, I find that to be the most mesmerizing thing to watch. Part of why, like, part of why, like a, a film like Jean Dielman, where you're just watching somebody do something. So you're watching this person shuffle the cards, and even the feeling of these kind of worn tarot cards, and this, I, you notice the size of them are bigger than you know, like than a normal set of playing cards and 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 then she she blends this with the credits too. So as the cards are laid down, credits are put over the card. Like it's just it's just a a fantastic opening and that opening also in a great way tells you about the characters it tells mm -hmm. you about the story you're going to see but because it's framed as a tarot card reading you're also not sure mm -hmm. you know so so it's like it's both i'm let let me set the stage let me tell you what's going to happen I mean, we even see the end of the movie in the tarot card reading kind of but the whole time you're asked to kind of question well, is this is this reliable what we're seeing? Because it because we're going to see that this movie is full of superstitions, which may or may not be reliable. It's few. It's full of other people's ideas and views, which may or may not be true or may or may not be reliable. And I find that so um, such an exciting opening. The the opening also anticipates uh, an element that uh, I've come to expect from Tarkovsky films. Uh, Tarkovsky, I mean, we talked about this with Stalker. It's also true with some of his other films where he'll make these jumps from 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 black and white to color. Uh, and of course, Varda was doing this before Tarkovsky was doing it and uh, doing it in the opposite order, making the move from color to, to black and white. But it's also wonderful, too, as you pointed out, Sam, that, you know, the first thing you get in this film are, are inanimate objects, the cards, and then just the hands. And... And, and so the film makes both a visual impression on you because of the color, but it also makes an aural impression on you because 
you, you all you hear are the voices you don't mm -hmm. so you don't know what these people look like as, as they're talking and it's it's really it and you of course are in their position right it's a subjective shot because you're looking at these cards um and so it's a it's an amazing way as you said to kind of pull you into the film in a way that you totally don't expect right so things that we learn from the tarot card reading uh yeah. someone near you is a widow she is a questionable influence and it's like okay is that somebody we meet and like i wonder like is that anjali is that is because like we don't really know how they're connected other than she seems to work for cleo and mm -hmm. she doesn't always give cleo the best advice so <laughs> so like there's no there's no indication in the movie that she's a widow but she is potentially a questionable influence maybe not i don't know uh we get a, a kind and generous man uh made you uh or excuse, excuse me made your artistic career possible yep. and then we meet jose and kind and generous is exactly how anjali yep. describes him yep. but then we also hear that she he lavishes attention on cleo which we don't we kind of see but don't particularly see she's not she doesn't seem particularly pleased with that we see evil forces in a doctor. Yep. Now, what I love about that is we get the doctor at the end, but we also get Bob as a as a pretend doctor, right? Mm -hmm. So we get we get a false doctor in the middle there. Um, we see an illness, um, mm -hmm. which is obviously the center of this, and then it ends with uh, a new acquaintance, a talkative young man who will mm -hmm. amuse you. Yes. And it's like, well, that's the shape of the movie. I mean, yeah. it. It both is and isn't, you know, which yeah. is just kind of this great way to open. So as you're watching it, if you paid attention to that beginning, you can look for those pieces and mm -hmm. figure out if you think this is uh, this is accurate. And then so then they, they have this reading and whenever they cut to their faces, it's it's black and white and yeah. it's only over the table that's in color. And as Cleo Lee after Cleo leaves, the fortune teller opens the door and there's a man sitting in this other room. This is almost a Lynchian moment. <laughs> you know, she, and there's this other man, man sitting in this little room. And she just says the card spelled death. I saw cancer. So it's like you were reading her fortune, but you were also not reading her fortune. You were also, you were withholding things that you saw there, um, which is just, again, fantastic open to this movie. But, but what's also interesting about it too, Sam, is that it puts you in kind of a double relationship to Cleo's superstitiousness, right? Because it, it, in a sense, it kind of affirms your superstitiousness because it says, you know, the tarots are accurate. Um, and so when there's other things that happen in the course of the day that invoke her superstitions, you kind of end up with a little bit of an ambivalent relationship to, to, the, to those things. Mm -hmm. um, I did a little bit of research on Tuesdays. Because oh, I was wondering uh, about this. Yeah, I actually keep saying, you know, not, not on Tuesday. And I thought, well, is Tuesday just kind of, you know, Cleo's thing? So I, 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 I confess I can't find anything in the Francophone world about Tuesdays. But in, in the Greek world, uh, Tuesday is considered unlucky because it's the day on which uh, Constantinople fell. Hmm. <laughs> and in the Spanish-speaking world, this seems more, so, uh, more uh, uh, significant to me. In the Spanish-speaking world, Tuesday is associated with Mars and thus with death. Now, on the other hand, I don't know if the French have the rhyme that we have about Monday's child is full of a fair face. Mm -hmm. Tuesday's child is full of grace. Hmm. So I don't know. I, I don't know if any of that was in Varda's mind or not, but it, I thought it was interesting. But even if it wasn't, it's it's interesting to think about those things. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, so, so as Cleo leaves, we get the first chapter title, which also excited because I didn't know we were going to get this, and we realize um, that this is. This story, um, interestingly, has 13 chapters to yes. it. You know, 13 is clearly an unlucky number. Uh, you know, so and, like, so that's very interesting. And Tuesday the 13th is unlucky in the Spanish-speaking world, specifically. 
Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Um, and uh, so many of the chapters, so the first chapter is, uh, is Cleo, right? So they're, they're titled usually around a character. Mm-hmm. Um, and at least early in the film, the chapters also start with a piece of voiceover from the person the chapter is named after. Mm-hmm. I kind of wish the whole thing did that and it sort of does, but it does, but, but, but not as explicit as we're going to cut to this person and hear their thoughts about what's happening in the moment. So, um, so we, we get this opening one of Cleo, which, uh, which says a lot and we, it also introduces another huge visual motif here, which is mirrors. We get the, yeah. the Citizen Kane, you know, multiple mirrors, infinite mirror shot. Cleo looking at herself and says, uh, wait, pretty butterfly. Ugliness is a kind of death. As long as I am beautiful, <laughs> uh, I am even more alive than the rest. Yes, yes. Um, so so we're getting this particular uh, this particular worldview. And, and, and we learn later perhaps where that point of view comes from. Because later Jose is going to say your beauty is your health. Yes. Yeah. Um, so this is this is coming from Cleo, but it may be things that she's internalized from the voices in her world. It also introduces another theme that runs through the film, Sam, which is the a woman's relationship to her body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Cleo seems to be somebody who is very uncomfortable with herself in some ways, even though she looks at herself in the in the mirror, she's always. She's always trying on, you know, she's wearing a wig we discover, for example. She's trying on hats. She's trying on new dresses. She has the conversation later with Dorothy about um, posing naked. She has a conversation with the young man at the end about nudity. Um, And of course, you know, the cancer is uh, is a threat to her her body. She's worried about becoming disfigured. So, I mean, I think that's one of the ways in which Varda is seen as kind of a proto-feminist filmmaker because she's really thinking a lot about how women think about themselves and how other people think about think about women. And so that's one of the themes that kind of runs through the film. Well, it's interesting because whenever she's looking into a mirror, she is looking at herself and she is inspecting herself. And yes. the th- interesting thing she says to Dorothy much later in the movie about posing nude is she said she says something about wouldn't they just find fault? Like, yes. like that's her fear is that my fear is that they'll just find fault. And that's what she's, I mean, that's a way to read every time she's looking into a mirror is she's looking for fault. She's looking for, you know, the problem she's looking for the cancer. She's looking for, you know, whatever, like, 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 like the mirrors represent this um, reflectiveness, which in a philosophical way can be, can be good, but it also can be this sort of self judgment or self doubt. Yeah, and, and, and Dorothy's response is, she says, my body makes me happy, not proud. They're looking at more than just me, a shape, an idea, as if I weren't there, like I was asleep. And, 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 it's, and, and then, of course, the, the kind of uh, the, the, triumphal, the triumphal declaration at the end, of course, is, and they pay me. <laughs> right. And, uh, and, 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 it, and it's interesting that you have her as one kind of alternative to Cleo's insecurity about herself, and then the other alternative is another very interesting character, which is the taxi driver. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and uh, Anjali says that she's charming and brave, and Cleo says she's revolting. You know, because because she's somebody who's in a sense she's the opposite of Cleo because her view of herself, her view of the world, has nothing to do with traditional femininity or a sense of her body. It's a sense of she's a worker and she's brave and she's, and she's entrepreneurial. And Cleo is not sure about that either. 
So, she so does dangerous things. Women yeah. kind of expose her insecurities. Absolutely, absolutely. So we get this. the The first half of this movie is a lot about how people view Cleo, people looking at Cleo, people or Cleo perceiving that people are looking at her yeah. and talking about her. Um, so we we you know she we see her walking through the streets of Paris and people looking at her. She goes to the cafe. This is where we meet uh, Anjali and her uh, and and um, this cafe is all mirrors too. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, um, and uh, I mean, one of the things. And again, a technical thing is like the need to hide the camera constantly when you have this much reflection is is pretty stunning. I did hear people break down certain moments where it's like, if you look very carefully, you can see they have a hat on the camera to make it look like a person in the background or things. I couldn't see the camera. But uh, so so Anjali's voiceover is uh, her and her hysterics uh, mm-hmm. when she could be happy. She needs to be looked after. She is a child. Um. And, uh, you know, this is this is setting up a theme of the first half of this film of everybody she encounters seems to be uh, dismissing her fears and her concerns mm. and her her health concerns, um, you know, whether it's it's Anjali or Jose or Bob and Maurice that, you know, that 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 becomes kind of a, a going theme. Um, and then and, and and what's interesting is, you know, as we talked about, Cleo sort of kind of plays the role that people are giving her. I mean, she, uh, again, Anjali's not wrong to say, you know, she needs to be looked after. She is a child, especially in her apartment. There are big parts where she, she feels infantilized and, mm. and, and kind of does that to herself a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so there is this sort of in, you know, internalization of this, um, from there we go to the oh, oh one one thing that 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 happens in that cafe that it's, is really interesting because it there's a, a different effect of this later is um Anjali is telling a story she's telling a joke oh, or yeah, a story yeah, yeah, yeah. and in the middle of it the attention shifts because we realize we are hearing what Cleo hears and Cleo stops listening to Anjali and starts listening to this other couple who are breaking up yeah and uh, and and uh, Cleo is reading that story as if it's about her we'll realize later she's reading that as if it's about her because there is this sort of sense that you know jose doesn't stay the night and things like this and that that's part of what the what is contentious between these two so even that is plays into this sense of like everything around me is really people talking about me and looking at me um so that i think that's a really kind of important moment then we go to the hat scene or the hat store which is some of the best camera movement filmmaking because again it's all it's all mirrors and it's all movement and we're we're moving from looking at Cleo and Anjali outside of the store while the camera's in to a move to them inside of the store the camera's outside and there's all these layers of reflections on the glass as people are walking past looking in looking in at her and then as she's looking at herself i think that that visually is such an amazing scene yeah, and then towards the end of that one, the uh, the, the shop window become turns into a mirror. So the idea of looking through but looking at at the same time. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. And um, I, I guess that that's one thing I want to say about the sort of durational realism of this. When when you had mentioned that, you know, uh, last week when you when you said this is what we we're going to watch, I assumed this movie. When I think of durational realism, I think of something like Hitchcock's Rope, where it's like this is all one shot. The amazing thing about this is not just the camera movements, but the this is a heavily edited film and at the same time moves in real time, which seems even harder to do. Yes. It seems like like a wonder would be the easier thing to do 
Um, uh, but this, this, the time seems to move realistically, but at the same time, we're getting edits and and cuts and things like this, which is just stunning in terms of how this is constructed. Um, so from we from the hat store, we get to the cab ride, which which we talked about. Um, a little bit, you know, on the cab ride, she continues to be observed in a kind of way. Um, there is the the men who drive by in the car and kind of hit mm, on her. Mm. Um, there are the African masks. I think there's two stores that were the cab stops and, and Cleo yeah. looks out at these African masks that are looking at her. The art students who kind of attack the car playfully, <laughs> but 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 attack the car. And then even and then we get the radio. Right. And so. Cleo is listening to herself on the radio and is critical of it, finding fault in the the, the production of the song, which is another version of looking in the mirror, right? It's an, mm-hmm. an auditory version of looking in the mirror. Um, and then we get the news report. I love the new. The, there's a long run of um, just the radio playing, and we hear about the Algerian riots. We hear about farmer protests, Khrushchev and Kennedy, uh, sewer workers, Edith Piaf. Um, you know all of these things, which is. Um, the thing I thought about was like, this is such a Tarantino moment. Like, this is the kind of thing Tarantino loves is like, if someone's in a car, we're going to play the like in, in once upon a time in Hollywood, you know, he went out of his way to be like, what was actually playing on the radio on this day? So we can, we can make, we can make that real. And like, and this feels like the kind of thing that, that would get someone like Tarantino excited. And of course, you know, it, again, typical of the French new wave. Um, it, it's hard in the early sixties to get away from the Algerian war. Um, Godard had just made Le Petit Petit Soldat. But again, to talk about how she's different from the new wave, she's aware of the Algerian war, but the way that you then interact with it is the meeting at the end with Antoine, which we'll talk Mm -hmm. about. That's a very different kind of perspective on on the war. At the same time, there's a sense that uh, one of the critics said that, you know, Cleo maybe is typical of a lot of French citizens and that she doesn't really pay particular attention to the war. It's it's in the background, literally. Right, right. And, and, and when we're later, when we get to the dome and she's walking around and you're hearing people talk about it, but it's sort of like offhand. I mean, that 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 that's offhanded in a way. It's it's not she's no longer attaching those those things to her. Um, so we get to Cleo's apartment, which is maybe the most one of the most interesting space in this movie. Yes. Um, and I heard I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about how, like, although this movie is in black and white, it's one of the great color shifts in the movie because out on the streets, everything is so colorful that it, you get the all these various grays and blacks and you get all the, you know, the, the mm. gradation of color and you get into her apartment and it is so starkly white and black. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, so again, this, this is kind of her interior space. Um, so things that we have in here, we have kittens all over the place. We have kittens. kittens yeah. um, we have that, the, the, the weird bar that she hangs on and that yeah, yes. it's the, the scene where she changed, where, where um, Anjali is changing her, her, her kind of dressing gown while she's hanging from the bar and smoking, I think all <laughs> at the same time. Yes. <laughs> um, she's in sort of this like, dressed up literally like a baby doll at this point. Um, uh, and then we have this swing in the, in this yeah, as well, yeah, yeah. Um, which made me think about, um, you know, where do you see an internal swing? You see it in like in a bird cage, you know, you yeah. see a bird and like, so, so, and this is the sense that she is this, this caged bird to a degree, you know, where she is there to look beautiful and to sing, 
you know, and this is, this is her, this is her beautiful birdcage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have Jose come in and this is, I think the first moment. So, so as Jose, as we hear him coming up, Anjali gets the door. We see Cleo start to kind of position herself, preparing mm. for this moment, positioning herself on the bed. And the whole time that Jose is there, I think this is the first time that we get a score in the movie. Mm. I think it's the first time the strings come up because it's yeah. this like you're right. No, it's it's a, yeah, it's a very um, it's a very uh, to to me the music really calls attention to itself at that mm-hmm. point, and I feel like it's a, it's an intentionally cliched romantic uh soundtrack it it doesn't i don't know i don't know if music can be ironic but it it sounded it seemed ironic to me yeah it seemed like this is the way it's supposed to feel but it actually doesn't feel this way to her right because what they're talking about doesn't match the romance of them of the moment right like 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 this is supposed i mean and and we should say um the the significance of from five to seven yeah. Um, which is which is the I don't know, is that a saying in France or just sort of viewed as like the traditional time when romantic trysts happen yeah, you know, I, I, before I think, you yeah, go yeah, home? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so so this is the moment when the sort of from five to seven action is supposed to happen, you know, and, and then the music is preparing for it, Cleo is preparing for it, and then it doesn't happen. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and instead he has no time for her and um uh you know, so so I, I loved that moment because it, it is this sort of it's not a break with the realism, but it's 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 a subjective experience of that, where where we have this sort of real experience of time. We are getting subjective experience of sound, and we're going to hear uh, music come back at some different points in this film after this. But this is, I think, when that gets introduced. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we get Bob and Maurice who show up um, after after Jose leaves, uh, and they again sort of make light of her illness. Um, they're they're there to practice songs with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very interesting. I don't know if you did you t- make note of the titles of the songs that they're giving her. Mm. Uh, well, certainly the last one that was the okay, that was awesome. right? But th- that that's a different one. But before that, it is okay. uh, the wayward girl, the fickle one, okay. the perfidious girl. So they're all they're all sort of these insults to to, <laughs> to Cleo specifically to young women in general, right? That it's like, oh, this is this is what what a, a young woman in love is. She is all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and this is where we get that word that 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 camera sway as as uh, Bob and I think Bob is the he's the person who is the scores the film as well I think well Bob, yeah Bob, um, Bob is Michelle Legrand mm-hmm. and uh, Legrand was really one of the great composers of the '60s and '70s he he did a couple of hundred uh, film and television scores he won three Oscars um, he scored other new wave films including uh, those by uh, by Varda's husband, um, uh, the the young girls of Rochefort and the umbrellas of Sherberg, which are both kind of wonderful films. Um, and he even scored uh, Orson Welles's last film that was completed after Welles died, um, The Other Side of the Wind. He actually mm. scored that as well. So uh, he's a he's pretty much a giant among uh, among the film among film composers. Uh, and then we have Cleo singing uh, Santois uh, yeah. without you. Yeah. Uh, which is a very different kind of song than the stuff that they had been singing and pitching kind of comically before. And here's again where instrumentation comes in out of non-diegetic instrumentation comes in or or sort of the fantasy instrumentation. There's also this amazing camera move as she's singing. The yeah. camera moves and it moves from 
the, the white background of this um of this room to a black background and it's always been there but it's like it's the way she frames it it's this transformation that happens as cleo is singing directly to camera no that's exactly right saying because because I, I was thinking that very thing as she's doing it i said well where where did the black background come from do they just you know is it like uh rear projection or something and no you're right it, it was there all along but we didn't actually see it which of course foreshadows her getting into the black dress um the other thing of uh, there, and there's a significant line in, in that song and she says um well first of all she talks about uh beauty wasted cold and naked so it gets back to that theme of nudity and, and nakedness and then she says my body decays on a crystal beer so it's all about it. So that film or that song also engages this theme of a woman's relationship to her body. And of course, again, anticipating the conversation with Antoine, uh, a woman's um, relationship uh, to love and, and what it means to be to be in love. I mean, I just have to say right now, Sam, one of the things I think is amazing about this film is that it, it gathers all these themes. And then in the last 15 minutes in the conversation with Antoine, it engages them all. So, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so then Cleo has this breakdown. She says, tantrums, tantrums. That's all you ever say. You make me this way. Treat me like I'm an idiot or a China doll. Everyone spoils me, but no one loves me. She steps behind the black curtain. Yes. The camera goes to black and then she pulls the black away and she's now in the black dress. She pulls off the wig. This is right at the halfway point of the movie. Yep. And here's where the movie turns. Here's where, where Cleo has gone through a literal transformation she takes off the wig she's now in the um in the black dress she puts on the uh the new hat even though and i love the line as she leaves she says um uh to hell with tuesday i'll do as i like and that and that really speaks to okay this this is this is where this is turning she goes she leaves she leaves by herself Mm -hmm. um goes out and on the way out she walks by a this is almost a surreal moment of a child on a toy piano playing yes. Santois. Yes. Um, and then it's picked up by a violin yep. plucking strings as she goes out into the street. Um, and we, and here we get maybe one of the most important moments in this movie. You know, I mean, that's obviously an important moment, but, but as part of this, she goes out and she looks into a mirror again, and it's this dirty mirror that has, uh, I, I think it's Chinese writing on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she looks at her face again and she says, the unchanging doll's face, that ridiculous hat, I can't see my own fears. I think everyone is looking at me, but I only look at myself. It wears mm-hmm. me out. So it's this realization that not only is is she only looking at herself, but it's like, that's probably what other people are looking at too. Maybe not everybody's always looking at me. Yeah. You know, I think, and, and, and then she starts to move through the world differently. And, and, um, you know, we get the, uh, we get the street performers and everybody's looking at the street performer. They're not looking at her. Right. And then the, the, the amazing scene in the dome. Um, and I need to say this about, uh, this about, about the dome and about this movie in general, which is, uh, not only is this real time, it's real space. Yeah. Uh, Paris is a city I'm somewhat familiar with. I know where these places, where some of these places are. Like I, I know specifically where Rue de Lombre goes, goes to the dome. Um, uh, Hemingway writes about these places. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so, so I've, I've toured students through these areas. So when I saw the dome, I got excited because it's like, I know exactly where I could, I could, if we were in Paris, I could lead you to the dome. Um, uh, so it was really cool to see a real space. And what's interesting is as she goes into the dome, we get the chapter title, chapter eight is not the name of a person, 
mm-hmm. it's quelque autres, which means other, uh, some others. So mm-hmm. it's like the other people, right? It's like, it's not about this per- these people who have this sort of power over her. So she walks through the restaurant. She plays her own song on the jukebox. Nobody seems to notice her. There might be annoyed that somebody played a song, but it's, you know, and, and, and now she's listening to the conversations and they don't seem attached to her. They're, you know, they're artists talking about, uh, talking about art movements or people talking about the Algerian war or things like this. It's, it's no longer, everything seems laden with, this is directly about me. And she's, she almost seems invisible for the first time in the movie. And I think it's also, I think, think this is why or how, um, she generates our sympathy and interest. So yeah. I think you know, I think the, to back up a minute, you know, Stan, the moment that, where she looks into the mirror and has that sense of kind of like being sick of herself, and I think that's the, that's the point for us where um, if we were struggling with with sympathy for her, I think that's the part where our sympathy begins to begins to grow and and, and develop. Absolutely. Um, so then Cleo walks out into the street. Um, and this is a really interesting scene. So I was really curious your thoughts on this. So she's walking down the street and it's a POV, sh- a POV shot. So we're not actually seeing Cleo, but we're seeing people look at her. What they're looking at is the camera. I'm, a, I'm assuming these are stolen shots as well. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that, that uh, Varga just yeah. filmed people as they were walking because sure. they are, they look like they're looking at a movie camera, like yeah, yeah, reacting yeah. to it. And then we cut to all these characters from earlier in the film looking straight at camera and it, it the last one of those is the wig hanging on the rack what do you make it this seems like a real significant moment in the movie what do you make of that see of that montage maybe well I, you know I, I i i take it that we're you know that we're in inside um uh inside cleo's head and it's like she's she's trying to kind of reevaluate you know where where she's been in in light of her new sense of of herself and trying to think about you know what what do people really think about me? What do I really think about people? So I think it's I think it's part of that turn of perspective on, on her. She starts to be more outward, um, a little bit more maybe objective about herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things I love, so she goes to see Dorothy, uh, but it's like she picked up the idea from listening to, because if you listen to what the two of the men are talking about, they talk about how there's no good models left. And somebody says, what about Dorothy? And then all of a sudden she leaves and goes to a sculpture studio where yes. Dorothy is, is posing. Uh, they have the conversation about, about posing nudity as we talked about. And then we go to uh, in a, a, another great car ride through Paris mm-hmm. where um, they pick up, uh, they pick up a package of, of films, I presume uh, to bring to the movie theater uh, for, for Dorothy's boyfriend, Raul, who's the projectionist. And I just have to say here that one of the things one of the things I love about what Barda does is she she tries to film car rides from every different angle, right? Mm-hmm. You get you're inside the car looking out, you're in the back seat looking out the front, you're in the front seat looking back, you're outside of the car, you're in the front of the car, you're you're outside of the car in the front and it's coming at you. It's just like, I mean, you know, Godard does stuff with the car and breathless, but she does, takes it to kind of like the next level. Like, how many different ways can we experience a car ride? Well, just, and it, it made me think about uh, Man with a Movie Camera. And it's like, yes. think about where those cameras have to be to, get, to yeah. get these shots. Like, these are very complicated things that she's doing. Mm-hmm. It's not just, oh, I would love if we could shoot from here. But think about how you have to, what do you have to do to pull that shot off is kind of amazing. And, and but, but the beauty of it is, even though as we talk about it, it sounds like, you know, a bravura filmmaking, which it is, but 
I, I found myself so drawn in. Yep. I didn't really think a lot about it. Like it didn't seem unnatural to me that I was outside the front of the car and they were coming towards me. That just seemed like, okay, this is a, this is a, this is another great point of view, but it didn't, it didn't make me self-consciously aware of the camera. You're absolutely right. I, all of these things were second viewings for me because mm -hmm. I wasn't worried about, well, what are they saying? And instead I was just watching her move the camera the second time. And that's when I realized like, oh my goodness, I didn't even notice all yes. the things she's doing. Um, so we then we get this surprise short film. And it's in the in the opening credits, at least to the restoration, it even calls this the surprise film or something. Yes. Uh, and what I love about this is we there's lots of this is a common thing in movies, right? Where you're watching people watch a movie, but mm -hmm. here you're watching it entirely from their perspective to the extent that they cease to be in the movie and you're just watching what they're you're just watching the thing that they're watching. You don't cut away to to experience Cleo or Dorothy or Raul watch the short, there is just this short. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I, and Var Varga said that uh, she thought that this is the point in a movie where movies get boring. So she wanted to put something interesting <laughs> in there. Uh, do you have thoughts on this, uh, on the, 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 the short film? Yeah. I, I, I went back and watched the short film again, because I just, so I love the idea that Jean-Luc Godard and Anna Karina. Um, and of course, I mean, the film, it's a, it's a it's a film about the film we're watching, right? Because mm -hmm. you get the Anna Karina character is both in black and in white. Uh, and she's in black when he puts on his sunglasses, which is an interesting comment on it being summertime. And so it's all about your point of view. It's all about your perspective. And if your you filters. things through a glass darkly, they look dark. If you take the glasses off, they look light. And so it's kind of a, it's a coded message to Cleo that she's not quite ready to, either you could say it's a coded message she's not quite ready to hear, or it's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen with her as she changes her perspective. So mm -hmm. it's just, it's lovely and it's fun. And I I, I just, I it's it's great. And it's, and it's wonderfully self-referential as well to about the new wave right well and i love that that varda said that um she she didn't like that that uh godard always wore sunglasses she said he has beautiful eyes so i want to make a movie about him taking his sunglasses off and throwing <laughs> it into the river <laughs> so uh so after this we get the we get one last mirror i think this is the last mirror we and that's the broken mirror yes you yes. know which which portends death and i love when dorothy uh so 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 Cleo's very concerned about this, you know, and um and then they go out and they go back to the um they go back to the dome out of the street to the dome and there's a a bullet hole in the window yeah. and someone's been shot and killed and Dorothy says, uh, you know, well that that broken mirror was for the dead man. And and Cleo says, I didn't think you believed in that. And she says, Yeah, but you do. It's like that's a good friend to be like, let me resolve your anxiety here. Yes. That thing you were worried about is now resolved. That person yeah. basically took the bullet for you if you were afraid of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so then we get uh the 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 move to the park, right? So she drops off Dorothy, she goes to the park. Uh, and this is where she meets uh Antoine. But before she meets Antoine, we have this great scene of her walking down the stairs singing and dancing but she's to she's totally alone right so mm -hmm. this is this is her not doing this for somebody else mm -hmm. but kind of for herself which is this i i, I love that moment because it almost i thought for a second like is this going to break into a musical right now because she's kind of starting to but instead <laughs> she's just doing this thing for herself and she's totally alone and then antoine walks up and at first antoine seems like yet another guy who's going to hit on cleo uh, mm -hmm. But that conversation changes, right? As we go, go into the final chapter, chapter 13, which is the only one that has two names, Cleo and Antoine. Yeah, yeah. 
So what are your thoughts on, on the, 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 the vast conversation between Cleo and Antoine in this last chapter? Well, you know, it's, it, it's when she's able to be vulnerable. Um, you know, she, they talk about fear and death. She says, I'm afraid of everything, birds, storms, elevators, needles, and now this great fear of death. And then he says, then you'd be afraid all the time in Algeria. And so I, to me, you know, the, the, there's a couple things going on here. One is that she is admitting her vulnerability. And rather than coming back, as happened in her apartment with, you know, people telling her nothing to be afraid of, it's going to be all right. He doesn't do that. He treats her fear as a common, as a, as a connection between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, you know, this, this is the first time where, first of all, she's being vulnerable. And it's the second time where she's actually listening to and looking at another person and, and having a kind of really genuine relationship with him at, at this time. So they talk about death. They talk about fear. As I said earlier, they talk about bodies. They, I mean, it, it's like they, they take all these things that have been in the film earlier and they kind of tie them together and in a sense kind of, kind of resolve them. One of the things that I love is the, um, the 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 revelation that Cleo is not Cleo, but Cleo is Florence. Yes. You know, because he's talking about Flora, and this is Flora's mm-hmm. season. And then she says, "Well, I'm not Flora, but my real name is Florence." And then he says, uh, "Florence conjures up Italy, the Renaissance, Botticelli, a rose, mm-hmm. Cleopatra." Evokes Egypt, the Sphinx, the Asp, a tigress. I prefer Flora to Fauna. It's such a you know it's a, and and even that feels like a, a a doubling of the the uh the short film right it's like point of point of view are you are you cleo or are you yeah. florence you can choose to be florence and florence mm-hmm. can be these things which aren't these other things and i i really i really love that and then he refers to her as florence i think for the rest of the movie yeah yes yeah. so yeah i mean it's it's another way in which yeah as you, as you point out sam it's another way in which she's doubled it's another way in which you have there's Cleo, the performer, the public figure, the 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 the, the insecure person, and then there, there's Florence, right? The person who actually may be capable of having a genuine relationship with another person, being compassionate towards somebody, and not worrying so much about herself. So it's a, it, I mean, the film is really fun. It's really interesting in the way that it does that. It does that kind of doubling. As, as you already pointed out, the film splits itself in half right at the halfway point. And it's like, how do you kind of resolve these two sides of the same person? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so then they we we get the uh the uh the bus ride, as you talked about, the you know, yeah. to the train station. There's a great shot. This is one of my favorite shots of the movie. When they get off the bus at they're at a train station. I'm not sure which one it is, but it's like the screen is split in half. And this is just what it looks like if you uh, buy at Parisian train stations. Half of it is the train line and half mm-hmm. of it is them getting off. And it looks like a split screen, but it's just, that's the photographer of like, here's the perfect place to put the camera. So mm-hmm. it feels like two separate worlds that are right there touching each other. Just a, I don't know that it means anything, but it's, just a, it's a very cool shot. Uh, and then they go to the hospital uh, and the doctor is not in. So they go for a walk. Um uh, they sit down on the bench and they decide to leave. They decide, you know, they, we only have a half an hour before Antoine has to get on his bus or get on the train, you know, to to report back uh, to the military. And as they're doing this, the doctor pulls up um, and uh, doesn't directly say she has cancer, but lets us know she has cancer. Um, and, you know, she the, the the closing lines, there's a great shot of the doctor the camera mounted on the doctor's car, zooming. pulling, zooming away. 
and then we get we get um we get florence saying to antoine uh i think my fear is gone i think that i'm happy and we get this image of the two of them walking together in very tight close-up um not towards the camera but with the camera you know as as we move to the end um how do you feel about the end of this I love the end. I, 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 you know, I, I love the fact that you get the last line, but then you get that you said that long shot, and then they just turn to look at each other at the, mm-hmm. at the very, very end. I think it's it's very eloquent. Um, mm-hmm. It's like they've they've used words to get to a point where they don't kind of need any more words. Um, yeah, so it's it's a lovely moment. Yeah, yeah. No, I absolutely adore this film. Is there anything else you want to talk about with this movie? I, I, I just wanted to back up a little bit, Sam. Uh, I, I love the moment. It's a, it's a little weird, but I love the moment when they're, um, I think it's either right before they get off the bus or as they get off the bus and they see that baby in the incubator. Yes. Um, and somebody says, um, I don't think it's clear that says it, but somebody says it, it, it's like Snow White's coffin. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and he, he, he'd already talked about birth and babies. When he talked about, it, he says, "Being naked is simplicity itself. Love, birth, water, sun, beach, all that." And there's this wonderful jaunty music playing in the background as he says that. So the baby shows up, and it could be kind of a, a weird. I mean, it is a little weird, but at the same time, it's like, how, how's that for an image of birth or or or, or rebirth? The kind of you know suggests that that's what's happening with Cleo. The other thing I love is there's a, there's a wonderful little double entendre she says to him as they're walking to the hospital uh your good cheer is disarming and he says now i am disarmed which of course to me is a double entendre because he's a soldier about to go back to war but currently he's not actually armed and then they actually hold hands as they as they walk along it's such a it's such a tender gentle ending and 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 by the end you realize uh, I think maybe I've kind of fallen in love with Cleo. I think maybe mm-hmm. she's a really wonderful person after all. <laughs> yeah. And there's also the, 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 the tr- I love that it's real time. The movie's called Cleo from five to seven and it ends at six 30. Yeah. I love there's something that. great about that because, because it's like, we're not privy to that last. I love that. She doesn't end at the train station. Yeah. We know, <laughs> we know where they're walking, but yeah. we don't need to see that. That's their moment. That's right. That's we right. know that, they, that, that this thing has been resolved for them to, to a degree where now they need to go live out the next part of this, this story. And I, I really, I really adore it. Uh, what do you have for us for next week, Barrett? Well, I, or not I next week. We're going to, we're going to take a couple weeks off. Yeah, that's right. We'll see. Yeah. Um, I, I cannot resist pairing this with another film from 1962, also divided into chapters, Jean-Luc Godard's My Life to Live. Um, I I think we're going to find a really interesting dialogue between these two films. They both come out within six months of each other in the same year. All right. Well, we are going to take a little break. Um, our next episode will drop on July 2nd. Um, I'm gonna go visit the uh, the Paris of Godard and uh, and Varda. So I'm gonna gonna so this is actually really fun to watch right before we go to Paris, um, just because I I I'm it gets me excited to walk the streets of one of my favorite cities in the world. So Barrett, thank you so much for for recommending this film. This is really really a great a great movie to watch, and you can watch it on so many in so many different ways and enjoy it. Uh, that is all the time that we have, but we will be back on July second to talk about my life to live in the video store.